0: John chapter 10, the first 21 verses. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the portereth openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling, and not the shepherd, whose own sheep they are not, seeketh, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is a hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father." And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. There was a division, therefore, again among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, He hath a devil, and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil openeth the blind, the eyes of the blind? And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that Thou would help us collect our thoughts, that we might focus on Thee, the Good Shepherd, Pour out thy spirit compass about us that we might not be thinking of anything but Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Well, this morning I want to review a little bit from last week, and then I want to move forward and help us to appreciate more about um, the Good Shepherd. You'll notice I changed one of the words in there intentionally. (laughs) The other words I changed, that was not intentional. But that one I did change intentionally is in verse 16. The Greek word in there is actually uh, flock, where it says, There shall be one fold the Greek word, and everywhere else it's translated in the New Testament, it is translated as as flock. So that's why I read it that way. So again, as we're in John chapter 10, we're thinking about what took place in John chapter 9 because the two chapters follow one another and one speaks to the other. We learned about a blind man in John chapter 9, and we saw that uh, he was blind from birth, and that's the case of the natural man. And we learned in John chapter 3 that the blind cannot see the kingdom of God. They are blinded by Satan. Their minds are blinded by Satan, who is the God of this world. We read about that in 2 Corinthians four four. Um, the fact that he's a beggar, we can appreciate that. He really has nothing to offer God. He brings nothing to the table, as indeed none of us bring anything to the kingdom of God. You know, naked I enter to this world, and naked I shall depart. That applies also in the kingdom of God in the context of what we might bring. Naturally, we're clothed with the Uh, garments that Christ has put on us when we enter into the kingdom of God. But in and of ourselves, we are naked. The Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one, that we are conceived in sin and that the wicked are estranged from the womb. And Isaiah 64, 6 sets before us what we all know to be true, that we are all as an unclean thing And all our righteousnesses, that would be any works that we might think we might present to God, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And so there is this man, he's a blind beggar, and Christ comes to him, as indeed he came to all of us. Either he came to us... uh, Through another person. He came to us through the scriptures. He came to us through somebody preaching, but Christ came to us. He came to this man completely unsolicited. The man did not ask for what he could not see, for what he could not apprehend, for what he could not understand. He hears the voice of the Lord as one of the Lord's sheep. The Lord tells him, the Lord puts mud on his hands, on his eyes, and tells him to go uh, rinse his eyes in the pool of Siloam. So he hears the Lord as a sheep hears their shepherd, and he obeys, and the result of which, of course, is his sight is restored. And now he can see these things. And interestingly enough, the Lord identifies himself to that man that he is the Son of God. A very forthright statement about who Christ is, and this the man, of course, can now see, indicative of that his spiritual eyes are opened. And we talked about that um, two weeks ago. Now, Because of this man's testimony, he is cast out of the synagogue. He is excommunicated um, from the man centered religion, the legalistic uh, religion of um, the Jewish nation. And so too was that true for all of us. Everybody has their own religion. People will claim they're atheists, but the Bible says they're not. The Bible says that they actually do believe and know that there is a God. They might say they're agnostic, but the truth is men are trusting in themselves. They're trusting in something, either, like I shared with us before, a mental ascension, some philosophical uh, way of thinking, or they think they're going to present works before God. So, God came to us all when we were in some form of religiosity, whether we were attending a church or not, uh, And irrespective of what we were believing, he came uh, to us. And so these men excommunicate um, this blind beggar from the uh, synagogue, and we can appreciate the truth of the scripture where it says what they meant for evil, God meant um, for good. So Christ, the good shepherd, we saw in the first couple of verses of John chapter 10, he came through the door of the national Israeli sheepfold. That sheepfold represents national Israel, it represents the religion of man, it's the door through which Christ enters in to call his sheep um, out of there. And so he who was formerly blind comes out through the door and he's led to greener pastures in Christ by Christ. Now, what we saw taking place in John chapter nine, the Lord parabolically or metaphorically speaks about here in John chapter 10, identifying himself As the good shepherd. And so Jesus is the good shepherd, and we, the elect of God, are his sheep. We are his sheep. And we can appreciate that um, analogy the Lord sets up, which applies all through Scripture, that uh, we are his sheep. People are like sheep. Sheep, by nature, are relatively harmless animals, and so are Christians. They are gentle and dependent upon the shepherd to lead them to green pastures. And as the scripture makes very clear to us, they are prone to wander. Isaiah fifty-six, three says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And if you've seen sheep in the field, I suppose what they're doing is they're just grazing with their head that far from the ground and not looking around what's going on. They're not looking out where the fence ends. They just keep their head down and just wander as they're um, grazing and um, are uh, not cognizant of the dangers that are around them or that they're even wandering from a green pasture to a pasture that will not provide them with good uh, provender. And so the Lord speaks to the reality of our circumstances in the narrative here, telling us that he is the good shepherd. Now, in the Scripture, we have several examples or types of shepherds in the Bible, which we should appreciate because they help teach us about Christ. If what you know about the character and nature of Christ is exclusively through the Gospels, what you understand and appreciate of him is really quite limited. You have to look at the types uh, that we see in the Old Testament to help appreciate um, what his character and nature is truly um, like. But as is common with all types of Scriptures, they always fall short, of the reality of who Christ is. But again, they give us insight as to his character and nature and the things that that he does. Now, respecting the shepherds in the Bible, we first have Abel. He's the first shepherd that's mentioned in the Bible. We read that he was a keeper of the sheep um, and that he offered up an excellent offering unto the Lord, indicating that he was righteous. Um, And like the good shepherd, how does it end for him? He is slain by wicked hands, which, of course, happened to Christ himself. Um, Acts chapter 2.23 says that he was taken and by wicked hands uh, crucified and slain. And so it was with the first shepherd that was introduced in the Bible. He's righteous, makes an excellent offering, uh, keeper of sheep, and he is slain by wicked hands. The next shepherd that's set before us in the scripture is Jacob. And uh, he is noted as... um, manifesting uh, tender care towards the sheep. He uses uh, wisdom in terms of what he feeds them, and through his um, care of the sheep, the flocks grow, and they grow in strength. And uh, we can appreciate that um, he knows the sheep are weak, he knows of their infirmities. Uh, We read that he um, bore the burden of their care when he's speaking with his father-in-law Laban. He shares that he bore the burden of that care and how he slept out with the sheep in the most inclement of circumstances and and weather, and he protected the sheep. And Laban never suffered loss as a result of Jacob's care. It was all to um, Jacob's charges. You recall when his brother Esau comes to uh, Jacob and would have Jacob uh, move quickly uh, to where Esau wanted him to go, Jacob says, no, 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 you go on ahead, lest we overdrive the sheep and we lose some of them. And so we have to appreciate that the Lord has for every one of his sheep a walk that is individually um, oriented towards them because he knows each of our needs, he knows each of our strengths, he knows what each of us um, can bear up to. And so we read that, let's say, in a theological sense, that the Lord will not give us more than we can bear. He always gives us grace and a way out. And so uh, we see that with respect to the way, uh, J- what Jacob's attitude is towards the sheep. He would not overdrive them. Neither will our loving Savior overdrive us. So Jacob is careful to lead them in the way that they should go, very much, of course, as Christ does. He leads us in the way that we should go, leads us to green pastures by still waters, makes us to lie down when we need to lie down and uh, have us um, eat in those and rest in him. Now, Joseph, then we see, of course, son, uh, Jacob's favorite son, we see that he is a um, shepherd also, and when he's first introduced to us in Genesis, that he was feeding his father's flock with his brothers. You now, shortly thereafter that, um, Jacob, his father, sends him to see as to the welfare of both the shepherds that would be his brothers, and to his father's flock. So he's got a twofold mission when he goes down to Shechem to see how things are going. He's going to check on the shepherds, and he's going to check on his father's flock. And how did his brethren, the shepherds, receive him? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was received the same way that Jesus was received. And for all practical purposes, from his father's respective, um, perspective, He was slain by his brethren. As far as Jacob was concerned, he was dead to him. Jacob uh, did not know that he was alive. And, of course, we know that afterwards he's um, uh, metaphorically raised to life when he's lifted up from the dungeon by Pharaoh and set up on high. Very much a type of Christ, very much following the pattern of Christ of humility uh, before exaltation. And in the context of what we're talking about here in John chapter 10, as the Lord speaks of to the Pharisees and uh, likens them as thieves and robbers, that's what his brothers were. His brothers were about the raddiest people um, that we can have set before us. Um, and uh, they represent the uh, shepherds of Israel who were not doing um, their jobs as they should have been, been doing. Their, their primary care was not for their father's flock. Um, after Joseph, the next, uh, shepherd we see after him is we see, uh, Moses and we find him in Exodus chapter two and three, where initially the first thing that he does is he delivers the seven daughters of, um, his future father-in-law. They represent the true shepherds of their father's flock. He delivers them out of the hands of the shepherds that quote would drive them away. And so, uh, they are subject to attack by these false uh, shepherds that might be considered thieves and robbers, as um, the Lord says before us here in John chapter ten, and so Moses uh, delivers them from those false shepherds. He protects the flock and then he waters the flock, and later we find him leading the flock um, near the mountain of God, and uh, we should appreciate that as the lord's sheep, of course, ultimately that's where we're going to is Mount Zion, the heavenly heavenly mountain. Um, That's where the Lord is leading us. Um, So finally, we have uh, David here. I shouldn't say finally, Christ is the last one. But then we have David next, and we know that he tends to his father's sheep. And of course, he hazards his life to protect the sheep. We read about him delivering um, the sheep from the mouth of the lion and from the mouth of the bear. And David slew them as he um, went to protect his father's sheep. And all of these, of course, in their most noble aspects, typify Jesus Christ. They typify his character and his nature, the things that he would do, and the, and the sheep that he would do it for. They're tending their father's sheep, just as the Lord Jesus is tending his father's sheep. And I hope you can see the doctrine of of um, limited atonement here in the context of that, that. God has his sheep that he tends just as these individuals had specific sheep assigned to them, and they watched them for their father's uh, benefit. And all of these individuals we see can be uh, contrasted with the shepherds of national Israel, whom the Lord describes as thieves and robbers. We see some of them in the Old Testament as uh, shearers of sheep. They would shear the sheep. You don't read about that with respect to the individuals I've said before you, from Abel to David. None of them shear the sheep. (laughs) These others, you see Laban, He shears the sheep. That would be Jacob's father-in-law. We see Nabal. He's an odious man. And though his flocks were protected by David, we see him uh, where he's fixing to shear his sheep. Then there's Jehu, who's met at the, uh, the house where they shear sheep. And then there's Judah himself who led a rather ratty existence, led a rather ratty uh, existence. And when he's walking in, in in disobedience, failing to provide a husband to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, that's where he's found. He goes down to shear his sheep. So these men are set in contrast to the uh, true shepherds, the good shepherd of, of Israel. And so with all of this as a backdrop in terms of these typologies, in terms of these different uh, shepherds that uh, either represent Christ are to be contrasted with him, we should appreciate the simple truths that the Lord sets before us here in John chapter 10. Um, The sheepfold that the Lord leads sheep out of our national Israel, and it belongs to his heavenly Father. When we read in Ezekiel chapter 34 um, last week, or I should say our deacon read that for us, we should appreciate that God takes ownership of the sheep. In verse 8, he says, Looks like three or four times in that one verse alone, that he, the flock belongs to him. I'll read thirty-four eight, Ezekiel thirty-four eight. As I live, saith the Lord, surely, because my flock became a prey, and my flock became meat to every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, neither did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. The Lord sets that forth before us his ownership of the flock in verse eight in verse 10, and verse 11, verse 12, verse 15, 17, 19, and 22. By the time you read through that, it's crystal clear that the Lord God has a flock of sheep. They belong to him. He's concerned about them. He cares for them. And the shepherds who um, should be watching over them are not doing that. They are feeding themselves and they are not feeding the flock of God. In verse 11 of Ezekiel 34, the Lord says what he's going to do. He says, For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. That is what the Lord God says that he is going to do. In verse 22 and verse 23 of Ezekiel 34, he says, Therefore will I save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey, and I will judge between cattle and cattle, and I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David, he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. So I hope you can appreciate when we're reading through Ezekiel 34 here, there's a distinction made between the Lord God and the shepherd that he will set up over the flock. It's going to be one individual he sets up over the flock. And I say that a bit um, tongue in cheek because if you don't have a handle on the Trinity of God in the sense that you can appreciate its existence from the first verse in the Bible all the way to the end, then this will be confusing to you. You know, in the first verse of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God there is plural, Elohim. It's a plural statement. So the Trinity shows up in the first verse of the Bible. And then as we go through it, you know, uh, as we talked about in the past, it said, let us make God in our image after our likeness. That's plural, let us. So the Godhead is very much involved. Every, uh, all three persons of the Godhead is very much involved in this idea of uh, of the regeneration of man, the reality of that, as well as shepherd Dying for the sheep and the flock and all that is tied up, uh, which we'll get to later here. So there is one shepherd, and that shepherd is Jesus. And again, we have to appreciate the unity of the Godhead. In John chapter 10, these things come together. He says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. The allusion is back to Ezekiel 34. He is the shepherd that the the Lord God has set up over the flock. In verses 3 and 4 of John chapter 10, he says twice that they are his own sheep. They belong to him. And yet in Ezekiel 34, they belong to the Lord God. But here in John, he says they are his own sheep. The shepherd leads those sheep. So we can appreciate that as Jesus is the good shepherd, the sheep belong to Jesus. The sheep belong to Jesus. Verse 30 of John chapter 10, Jesus says about as plain as could possibly be stated, he said, I and the Father are one. And everybody knew what he said because they picked up stones to go kill him again. So they understood what he was saying here. So we appreciate the unity of the Godhead in Jesus the Christ. He is the shepherd of the flock. He is also the possessor of the flock. He is not an hireling as it says in verse 13. He is the possessor of the flock as well as the shepherd of the flock. Now he's the possessor for three reasons. Well, first one is he's God. He and the Father are one. And the other two reasons flow from that. So notwithstanding that he is the son of God, they were given to him by God the Father. We read about that in a couple places in the Gospel of John, but in Genesis 44:22 it speaks of God as quote, he that stretches forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth, he forms the spirit within Spirit of man within man. God is the one who put the spirit in a man. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. And that we read about, I got the references mixed up. In Genesis 14, 22, it speaks of God the Father, the Lord the Most High, as the possessor of heaven and earth. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. He owns every person on this planet. They all belong to him and are subject to his disposition. He formed the spirit that is within man. That's from Zechariah Twelve, verse 1. In John chapter 6, uh, where we got lots of theological truths there, the Lord says very plainly that all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. The sheep were given to the Son by the Father. He repeats it in verse 39 of John chapter 6. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again the last day. Again, speaking of people or sheep that are given to the Son by the Father. In verse 44 of John chapter 6, and now we're picking up the idea of the Lord going out and seeking his lost sheep and drawing them to himself. He says, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up. And in verse 29 of John chapter 10, he says here, My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. He's speaking in the context of sheep. Again, we've read here three times where Jesus is saying, the Father has given me the sheep. And so uh, as was intimated in Ezekiel 34 about God the Father searching for his sheep and giving them to his good shepherd whom he gives to God the Son. He draws the sheep to Christ, just as God drew the animals and and had them go into the ark, uh, Noah's ark. He draws his people out of this world and he gives them to his Son. Now, the second reason that the sheep, or we belong to Jesus, is that Jesus, as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, bought the sheep with his blood. We are bought with a price, and scripture says we are not our own. He owns us. He bought us and paid for us with his blood. We are his purchased possession. Now, we read that last week in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And I'm going to read that again because it brings this together here. He says, take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock. So we're talking about the flock here, the sheep, over the which the Holy Ghost had made you overseers, meaning the true shepherds, the true under shepherds are chosen by God to watch over the flock to feed the church of God, which He, God's the subject of this uh, sentence here, hath purchased with His own blood. So we're seeing in this um, one verse here the idea that He who died on the cross, which is Jesus, and purchased the flock is God. He that was God's blood that that was used to purchase the flock of God. So. All things we know belong to God and all men will be judged by Christ Jesus in whom God hath appointed all judgment. Um, And those he purchased with his own blood, that would be the flock of his fold, his own sheep, were purchased in point of time when God poured out his wrath on his son Jesus on the cross due our sins because of our sins. It was then and there at the cross that Jesus laid down his life for His sheep, the word for means in the place of. He laid down his life in the place of the sheep. In John 11, John chapter, excuse me, verse 11, John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Again, back to Isaiah 53, 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. God hath placed on the shepherd the iniquity of all of his sheep. And that when he went to the cross. So again, he repeats that in verse 15 of John chapter 10. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Sheep that we can appreciate are helpless. And without strength to do things for themselves, he laid down his life for them. And the doctrine of that reality is in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and 8, it says, For when we were yet without strength. In other words, helpless sheep. When we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man would some even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so there we were, as sheep gone astray, wandering about, engaging in various activities um, of sin. Christ came to us, sought us out, and bought us, and placed us in the fold of Christ himself. Now this we read in verse 18 of John chapter 10. He did this by the commandment of God we can appreciate what that means in the context of his obedience. God the Father um, commanded him that he would do this thing and he did it by obedience. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, we read, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Christ voluntarily went to the cross of his own accord, was not compelled to do it, He did it of his own accord in obedience to his Father's will. He willfully laid down his life, and he willfully was obedient to the Father. So don't ever denigrate um, the death of Christ or let anybody else do it by entertaining the foolish idea that his life was taken from him, that he died a martyr's cause, was grabbed by a mob, and mob mentality took over, which he was subject to, and he was dragged to the cross No, he went there of his own accord, voluntarily. And don't think that the conspiracies of the kings of this earth, as it speaks about in Psalm chapter 2, that they were victorious in what they did, that the people rose up and slew the mighty God. Obviously, that did not take place. Nothing could be further from the truce. Christ voluntarily went to the cross. How many times have we read in the Gospel of John alone where the people sought to kill him, and yet he walks out through their midst? They cannot lay a hand on him because, as the scripture says, it was not yet his hour. His time had not yet come. There was an appointed time when he was going to go to the cross and it would not happen one moment before that time It was not yet his hour. Even in this chapter here, John chapter 10, verse 30 and 31, as soon as he says, I and my father are one, verse 31 says, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And so they endeavor to kill him, but they can't do it. They can never, no one can take his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord. Recall when he's arrested in the garden in John chapter 18, they don't know who he is. They come, they ask him who he is, and he has to tell them, yeah, that's who I am. He has to identify himself. John chapter 18, they come looking for him, and they say, he asked them, whom seek ye? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, he could have said he went that way. You know, but he didn't he says, "I am he," in other words, he 's identifying himself as God he 's using that term "I am again," which he uses a num- number of times in John chapter ten here, but as soon as he said that, they all fall backwards onto the ground. Nobody has any power to lay a hand on him. They all fell over backwards, so we we have to appreciate that when he let allowed himself to be bound and let off, it was voluntarily he could have He could have kept left them all on the ground there. He could have destroyed them uh, with his word. He spoke everything into existence and he can speak everything out of existence if that's what he chooses to do. So he says, I am, they all fall backwards. When he's presented to Pilate, he tells Pilate that Pilate can do nothing. He says, thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. And where do we see the Lord? What do we see the Lord doing when he's on the cross? Is he behaving himself like someone that is... uh, has been taken and nailed to the cross um, that he did not agree with that process. All the while he's on the cross, he is ministering um, to people all the way up to the point where he gave up the ghost. He ministers. He um, tells the uh, repentant thief on the cross that he will see him in paradise. He ministers uh, to his mother while he's on the cross, making sure that she's got a place to live. So all the while he's on the cross, he is ministering to people around him until he gives up the ghost. And so we have to appreciate his language here in John chapter 10, that as the good shepherd, he laid down his life and he took it up again, evincing his father's satisfaction with the penalty that was paid. It talks about Christ being raised again from the dead for our justification, indicating, of course, that God was pleased with his sacrifice. And we read about that both in Romans as well as in Isaiah 53, that the Lord was pleased. The Lord was satisfied with what Jesus had accomplished. He, in fact, with his blood, purchased um, the sheep. And so, again, appreciating that in Christ Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, he owns the sheep. They were given to him by God, they were purchased with his own blood, and he is God Almighty. Now, with these truths set before us, let's consider the import of something the Lord says in verses 14 and 15. So let's take a look at those for a moment, because I want you to appreciate the relationship you have with the good shepherd. Verses 14 and 15 are parallel in their construction. He says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep. I am known of mine. Now there's the parallel here. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. As Jesus knows his sheep, that relationship is the same as as it is between the Father and the Son. Same relationship that we have with him, he has with his Father. There cannot be a closer, more intimate, and loving relationship that exists than the one between God the Father and God the Son. As a matter of fact, in Scripture, the first place that the word love appears in the Bible is between a father and a son. It's between Abraham and his son Isaac when he's uh, taken him up the mount to uh, sacrifice him. He's identified as his beloved son. It's the first time the word love appears in the Bible. It's between a father and a son. God... The Father and God, the Son, and certainly God, the Holy Spirit, they are all one. And so what the Lord is telling us really here is that he's one with his sheep. Our good shepherd is one with his sheep. Uh, and so we have to appreciate the intimacy of that relationship. If you think for a moment that you have a thought, a care, or concern that is unknown by your shepherd, then you are mistaken, then you do not know Christ. You do not appreciate the relationship that you have in him, or you can rest in him, and that everything he does is for your good. Every circumstance in your life is for your good, because he has ordained it. He could certainly remove you from it if he thought there might be something better for you. So we need to keep this in mind, and I'm speaking to myself here, that when I'm frustrated with my circumstances in life, I'm really sinning because I'm telling God, through my frustration, that um, I think there's something better for me out there, and he has withheld me from it. But that's, of course, not the case. He will withhold no good thing from his sheep. And the Bible says that. For he, has, you know, he that has given us his son, you know, will he not with him give us all things? If he killed his son for our good, for our behalf, what thing could you possibly contemplate would he withhold from you if he withheld not the life of his son? Well, there, there is nothing that he would withhold from you. That's how deeply he loves us and how intimate he's um, united with us in terms of his relationship, in terms of the things that he gives um, to us. He gives himself to us. Now, um, there is certainly also an eternality of knowledge there too. As the father knew the son from eternity past, so too do they know us in that same context we're going to get to that when we get to john chapter 17 where it talks about how the the lord loves us the same way the father loves the son and so we should appreciate that where he is he loved him from eternity past he has loved his saints from eternity past as well we're going to pick up some of that language in ephesians chapter one in terms of when the lord gave us to the son when the father gave us to the son in ephesians one chapter three and excuse me ephesians chapter one verses 3 and 4, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. All the blessings that we have are because we are in Christ. We are united with him, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, and love. So before the foundation of the world, we were in Christ. And so all of the blessings that we have are really eternal in that context. Now, if you drop down to verses 10 and 11 of Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about us being gathered into Christ, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one, all things, in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom Also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. When you meditate on these words and think about these things, I can't imagine anything on this world that we would possibly fear. Your destination has been predetermined by God from before the foundation of the world. You will get to glory. You are in Christ now. We are in him, and you will get to glory. Just as it says here in uh, verses 16 that there is one um, flock of a truth, there is one fold as well. And that fold, of course, is Christ himself, which our deacon uh, read to us about in Ephesians chapter 2. And that one fold and that one flock includes people from every uh, kindred, tongue, and nation it includes people from Adam on downward until such time as the Lord comes. Salvation has never changed. It includes Jews and Gentiles alike. It has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So it includes people that were Gentiles before the Jewish nation. It includes the uh, remnant of Israel, the elect of Israel, and it includes people, of course, that um, the Lord uh, brings in after the cross, which would be the Gentiles, of course. So Jew and Gentile alike, the Lord has has removed the middle wall of partition between us and created in himself one, one person. So in verse 16, the Lord says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, meaning the fold of national Israel. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one Um, flock as I said in the Greek it's one flock and one shepherd and so as the Lord says in Ezekiel 33 so too Christ says and he does he will seek out his sheep and he will have one flock and they will be in the one fold of Christ wherein they shall rest in eternal glory now Naturally, this is not well received by the Jews when they hear that. It creates division, and we should appreciate that the Lord says, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. And so from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, we always read about division. It's between the Lord's sheep that are his, the ones that hear his voice, and all the other sheep in context here, all the others. There's a division that takes place as the Lord separates us from the world. And naturally, they accuse him of what's really true of them. They accuse him of having a devil... Um, But somebody's got some sense here. The others say, can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And the answer is no, a devil cannot do that. That's the opposite of what devils do. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, it speaks about how that the devil, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, has blinded the minds of the people here. It says in there, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God, should shine unto them. It's the devil's that blind, it's certainly not Christ. He's the one who opens the eyes of the blind. Now, having this set before us here, by way of application, there's some things that we should think about here. He's the, shepherd, the good shepherd, and we are the sheep. And he said that his sheep hear his voice. So the question is, do we hear his voice? You're not going to hear his voice if you don't settle down and listen to the shepherd. So do you listen to the shepherd? And that's a fair question for everybody. Certainly myself, do I listen to him? I have gone through times in my life in the past where I have not listened, and the Lord will reach out, and I say this <laughs> euphemistically, tap me on the shoulder and get my attention. Um, he'll bring me back. And so uh, do we listen? or do we, Are we prone to wander? I've been prone to wander over my life, and so we don't want to do that. Um, when the Lord leads us, will we lie down peaceably? As, he sa- as it says we should, Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Well, if you're wanting, it's because you're not paying attention to the shepherd. Do you feed on what he sets before you? In other words, do you meditate and do you pray upon his word? Do you contemplate the things that the Lord uh, has in his word and see how it applies to your life and how you should uh, respond to uh, the things that we are confronted with in the world today? Um, do you trust your shepherd? Do we trust our shepherd? Do we keep our eyes on Christ? Or are we you know, kind of looking over our shoulder to see if any dangerous thing is coming our way and not relying upon the Lord to warn us, the Lord to um, bring it to our mind that what we're doing is not the right thing or what is happening to us should not be occupying our attention. And uh, I'm, I'm, the obvious application here is everybody's looking at the mark of the beast. What is the mark of the beast? And so my um, warning to us is as we're looking out in the world and seeing how Scripture is being fulfilled, don't ever take your eyes off Christ. Don't ever take your eyes off Christ. If you do that, um, then you're going to stumble. And that's that's just the way it works. So uh, I don't want to be guilty of that myself. So, But keep your eyes on Christ. Keep yourself in Scriptures. Meditate on His Word. And uh, we must ever be mindful of those things and trust in the Lord. The scriptures is replete with statements that blessed are those that wait on the Lord and blessed are those that uh, put their trust in him and lean not unto their own understanding, but in all their ways acknowledge him and he shall direct our paths. As the good shepherd, he will direct our paths. And so we are to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind and meditate on him. And with that, I'll say amen. amen.